Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 244. This week, Wednesday, will be Yutshvat, Tavshin Ayin Tes, entering the beginning of the 70th year of the Rebbe's leadership. In Tavshin Yud, on Yutshvat, was the Histalkus of the Friedrich Rebbe. And that same day, Chassidim accepted the Rebbe as Mamala Mokim. So, Tavshin Yud till Tavshin Pei will be exactly 70 years. So we consider this already the entering into that period. So Yud every year, of course, is extraordinary, but especially when you're marking and beginning to mark a milestone. So, of course, in our traditional fashion, we will begin with addressing that topic, its relevance to us. Chassidus applied is the Chassidus of the Rabbeim, but in our situation, it is as it's funneled to us through the lens of the Rebbe, of Deir Ashvi, which of course connects with 70 as well. So of course we have to address this topic and not just have to, we're honored to do so. I want to begin that this program is dedicated in honor of the Rebbe upon the beginning of his 70th year of leadership on Yudshvat, and in honor of Rivke Rechel upon her ninth birthday on Yudshvat dedicated by her parents, Kobe and Malki Lang. Okay, so there are many things we can say about Yudshvat. We could talk about the Rebbe, we can talk about the Rebbe's unique form of leadership. We can discuss the different tkufis and periods that the Rebbe each year would increase and expand the activities of spreading chassidus. But above all, I believe it's always best to begin where the Rebbe began. <clears throat> Excuse me. When the Rebbe assumed leadership officially in Tovshin Yud Aleph, the official way a Rebbe assumes leadership as a Rebbe is said a saying a discourse. Until then, the Rebbe was not saying a discourse. He would say sikhs, talks. But Yudshva, Tovshin Yud Aleph, the Rebbe said the Maimer, Bosil which is as was the custom by the Friedrich Rebbe to say the first Maimer beginning with the same Dibra Maschel, the same beginning as the last Maimer of the previous Rebbe. Now we know Bosilagani Achei was a series of four Maimorim that were published and um, distributed that Shabbos, Shabbos Parsha Boy Yud when the Histalkus took place. It consists of 20 chapters, and when the Rebbe began Bosilagani, Tavshin Yud he, of course, discussed the entire discourse, but primarily the beginning of it. And then subsequently, every year, the Rebbe would take one of the 20 chapters and in an orderly fashion would discuss the main focus of the Maimah was that chapter. So in Tafshin Yud Beis, 1952, the Rebbe discussed chapter 2 primarily. In Tafshin Yud Gimel, chapter 3. Tafshin Yud chapter 4. Chassidim didn't know what would happen after the cycle would conclude, which would be in Tovshin Lamed. Tovshin Chavtes was still the, the 19th chapter. Tovshin Lamed was the 20th chapter. What would it take place in Tovshin Lamed Aleph? So the Rebbe began again the cycle, saying the Maimon and focusing on chapter 1, and went through a second cycle from Tovshin Lamed Aleph all the way till Tovshin Nun. Things changed in the, the Memches as far as my modern were said, but it was still that order. So actually we are now, if you go with that cycle, we're at the beginning of the, the, first, the, first ninth, the ninth chapter of the fourth cycle. And we have, thank God, we have, besides the chapter 9 itself from Basil Ligani, we also have the Rebbe's Maimon in Tafshin Yutes, 
where he explained primarily that chapter 9, and then again in Tavshin Lametas. The corresponding years are 1959 and 1979. So how more fitting is it in honor of Yud this week is to share a few thoughts from that chapter, and especially as the Rebbe explained it in those two discourses. In Tavshin Lametas, the Rebbe actually continued the theme not just on um, that Bosilagani of Yud but also in the Shabbos afterwards and Tu and it's all collected. You can see all these sikhs, all these memorim, I should say, already published. Tavshi Yutes Maimer, the Rebbe actually edited. But he wrote Hanoch on it. It was a form of edit. Was not, the Rebbe wrote Hanoch, it would mean it was edited, but not in the most formal fashion to make it a completely published uh, discourse as the other memorim, which are considered muge on the highest level. Not here is the place to go into that. I'm just pointing it out for the record here. So what is the theme of chapter 9? Before we get to chapter 9, we have to talk about the theme of the entire Hemshech. And this is what the Rebbe would do every year in the Maimed. He'd begin from Basilagani and go through all the chapters summarized until he got to the chapter which was the focus of that year's discourse. So what is the teichin, the content of the first eight chapters? So of course it begins with Basilagani Achesi Kalo, where the Medrash says on the Pasuk Basilagani Achesi Kalo, come to my garden, my sister, my, my sister, my bride, that it refers to the Ebrishter, God. And Gani is referring to Ganeden. Gani doesn't say, he says Gnuni, it says Gani, which means that this was the place where the Ikashchina was. Meaning, when God created the universe in the beginning, when Adam and Chav were put into Ganeden, the Ikashchina betachtenim, I said. It was down here below. But tragically, due to the Chetetzadas, uh, it caused so-called the concealment of the Shekhinah, of the God's presence, to be removed in a revealed way to what's called from the earth to the Ki Hashvi. I'm sorry, the Ki Harishan, to the first heaven, which is a dimension. Then the second generation of sins caused it to be concealed even more, to the Ki Hasheni, the second heaven. And so each subsequent generation of, unfortunately, people transgressing and wandering away from their purpose and calling of existence caused the Shekhinah, which was there initially in a revealed way. God's presence meant the existence was aligned with God's presence. It caused it to be concealed until it began to be reversed. By whom? By Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu began to reverse the process by revealing godliness in the world, which is what Avram did. What did he accomplish? He brought down the Shekhinah from the seventh to the sixth, and then Yitzchak sixth to the fifth, and continuing on, the Medrash says, in Shira Shirim Rabbah, all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu, the Deir Hashvi, the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, and Kol Hashvin Chavivin, the Friedrich Rebbe adds in a parenthesis, the seventh are always especially precious. He, Moshe Rabbeinu, what did he accomplish after Matan Teira? The Shekhinah returned to Tachtenim. The divine became revealed again in this, on this earth, on this lowest plane, due to Moshe Rabbeinu, the cumulative efforts of the six generations, concluding with the seventh of Moshe. Then the, the, the Maimer continues on, Boslegani, to speak about <clears throat> what the Kavana is, the Kavana, the purpose is that we should make sure that the Shekhinah remains down below. And how do you do that? Through Tehra Mitzvah, through our Aveda, where we draw down the divine in, in this world and make a Dira B'Tachtenim. Then he goes on to explain in more detail what is this v'shachanti b'seichem, 
the Shechina in the Mishkan. The Mishkan becomes the microcosm of all our service in this world because the whole purpose of existence is to make this world into a dwelling place, a home for the divine. So he explains that the Aved in the base of Mishkan and the base of Mikdash was what? To bring Karbonah's offerings. Offerings really meant Odom Kiyakrim was not just the offering, it was offering ourselves, our animal soul, the behemoth within each of us, and turn that into a, and be consumed by a divine fire. So it's essentially aligning and redirecting and harnessing our animal soul and all its desires and temptations in this world toward the divine. That's how you make how you bring godliness into our lives. Then he continues and says, but also the details, even the further details of how the Mishkan was built, was built from Atzei Shittim. Atzei Shittim, or the, the, the wood that was used, was a... Was, um, cedar wood that was used in order to build this Mishkan, that the Mishkan, which was, of course, the temporary dwelling place, the temporary um, uh, tabernacle that traveled with the Jews through the wilderness. And shittim comes also from the word, he explains shtus. Shtus means insanity, but shtus can also mean an inclination. It can be an inclination towards self-interest and indulgence, or it can be an inclination towards shtus the Gedusha, where you elevate the insanity of a person following their own desires toward the divine. And then he continues and says that from these shittim, what did they make? They made kroshim. Kroshim were the beams. Kroshim were the amudim. The kroshim were the beams that held up the mishkan. And the kroshim, the word keresh, just like the word he analyzes the word shittim, the word keresh consists of three, letter, three letters, kufre shin, and he explains that firstly the word keresh can be reversed and it says the word sheker. So the purpose is to take the sheker of this world and turn it into pillars for, for a mishkan. And more specifically, each of the three letters, kufreshin, he explains, are three negative manifestations of energy. And when you turn it into keresh, into something that becomes atzashitim emdim, uh, uh, that it stands up and holds up the base amigdash, the Mishkan, that turns into, that's the transformation of this world into a world of holiness. Now he comes to chapter 9. In chapter 9, he continues this theme and says, so what is the diuk, what is the meaning of the word emdim? That's the main focus of this chapter, emdim. That the Krashim, the Hatshashiptim, emdim, they stood up, upright. So he explains that emdim comes from the same word as amudim. It's the same letters. Amudim means pillars, and Emdim means to stand up. What are these pillars? These are the pillars that are similar to the pillars that we call the mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are called Tarach Amudi Eir, 620 pillars of light. And that's the Kiroshim are similar to that. Then he goes on to speak, how do you create a pillar? You create a pillar by making sure that there's even pillars. For example, the letter Kuf from Keresh the problem with the letter kuf is that the left leg goes, goes down too long. So you need to cut off the left leg and make it a hay. In a hay, you have two legs and a roof that are even. That's why something can stand. A kuf, it's like one leg. One leg, something cannot stand. Because sheker, ein glaim, does not really have anything to stand on. So the purpose here is to, re, is to transform the kuf, which is the negative forces in life, the klippa, the feminine dimension of klippa, the masculine dimension of klippa, and, and turn it into a hay of hine. So if you have a, say kane, kane is a, um, a rod, 
when you turn the kuf into a hey, it's hine. What is hine? Is the divine revelation of when Mashiach comes, things will be hine. You say, here, behold. So you're transforming the negativity, the concealment of this world into a hine revelation. And you reveal the divine unity in this world and the divine unity, the way that God is beyond any shinri. Why is that relevant here? Because when something is standing on strong pillars, it doesn't totter, it doesn't waver, it doesn't shake. When you turn the, the kuf into a hey, hine, then you create the agdus Hashem, avni Hashem leishanisi, the divine um, consistency and persistence that doesn't go through any type of wavering changes. In other words, it's unchangeable, unwavering. That is transfer- That it becomes. This world becomes a dinner for that, a home for God on that dimension. That's the the, the, the summary, the chapter nine, in Tovshin Yutes and in Tovshin Chavtes, the Rebbe Tovshin Lamates, the Rebbe explained this chapter, different points. But to sum up briefly, the Rebbe focuses in Tovshin Yutes primarily on the difference between mitzvahs and kroshim. That the, the language in the Mimer is. Kroshim are similar to mitzvahs, but not exactly. Why? Because mitzvahs, as he says in the Maimer, is mamshich. Now it doesn't just unite. It doesn't just unite heaven and earth. It actually draws down heaven to earth. Kroshim exp- expression there is, is that's mechabit, it connects. Like what does a pillar do? It connects the, the floor of a building, in this case the structure of the Mishkan, to the ceiling that they should become literally one. That's the language in the Maimon chapter 9. And the Rebbe emphasizes, because one is more about, Kroshim is more the Aved and Ruchnis, the Aved of transforming the Nefesh Abamis. Mitzvahs are, manifest themselves literally in the physicality of this universe. And therefore, they actually draw down Atzmus itself, the highest levels of the divine, even to the core divine, because this is the intention to bring it down into this world. And the Rebbe compares it, that says in Kabbalah and Svarim, that when you talk about it, you saw it, the foundation of a building, in our world, the foundation is at the bottom of the building. <clears throat> and the whole building rests on it. Yisod Lamayla and Ruchnius is the Yisod that comes first, and from there it draws down into, into uh, the, the lower levels. So Yisod there is above the building, so to speak, above the structure. The Rebbe explains why. Because the Kavani is the Rebbe So the Yesha Gashmi is meaning the physical materialism of this world connects all the way to the highest levels. So that's why the Yisod is Lamata. And as he says in Tanya chapter 36, that in the higher worlds, they're not, they're, the higher worlds are just revelation. It's only in this world that we have the connection to the highest levels. So the Yisod is Lamata. There is a discussion what exactly the Rebbe means to say with that, because from that it appears that the Kroshim which is, which is not the mitzvahs like the mitzvahs drawing down seem to be a higher dimension. But it, apparently from the Maimon it really comes out that it's the other way around, that the mitzvahs which come down to this lowest of world, that connects to the highest of levels. But regardless how you understand it, what it means to us personally is the fact, the main focus here is that what we can achieve in this world, no higher worlds, no level that exists can achieve like that we can. <clears throat> Why? Because the purpose of existence is given to each one of us in this material world. And that's the focus of the whole Maimar of Lagani. That the beginning, Shekhinah, the divine, was in this world, not in the higher worlds.
But then due to human errors and human transgressions, that was concealed. So our job is to bring it back into this material world. And the Deir Ashvi, as the Rebbe said in the first Maimon of Boselegani in 1951, Tov just like the Meshur Rabbeinu accomplished it then by building the Mishkan, we accomplish it now through being the Geula, which will be the ultimate Shlemus of everything, because we're the Deir Ashvi. In the Tov Shalamites Maimon, the Rebbe interestingly focuses a lot on why the Mekroshim Emdim was only in the Mishkan, not in the temple in the base in Yerushalayim, not in the base Amigdash. Usually, the base Amigdash is considered superior to the Mishkan, and the Rebbe explains why: because the Mishkan was built by Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe has this power to create this unwavering, and incessant and permanent connection. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, but of course, Moshe Rabbeinu of every generation. So Moshe did Ashvi then, and the Moshe of our generation did Ashvi now focuses all on the power to ultimately finish the job of transforming this world and making it a dirabitakhtenu. And by cutting off the left leg, or shortening, I should say, the left leg of kuf, which means the indulgences where we immerse, we immerse ourselves too much into the material world. So the goal here is not to eliminate that. We don't believe in asceticism. The goal is to harness it and turn it to a hay that it becomes hine where we can actually behold. So in very simple terms, practical terms, each one of us in our own way has to look at our lives and see where in my material life can I focus, instead of indulging, how can I minimize that indulgence, and where can I redirect my material activities toward divine ends. This is the essential applied chassidus of, of chapter 9. And when you do so, you're actually reaching the highest, highest levels above. As the Maimon Tafshin Yates, he explains it at length, how the lowest levels you connect to the highest levels. He brings there the three examples from the Mitla Rebbe in explaining why why in the end you see the power of the beginning. So of course I'm not doing justice to the full chapter and to the, definitely not to the Rebbe's explanations, but I wanted to talk about one key point, which is the main focus of this, the Amudim, to make things stand strong. And we can achieve that only in the lowest levels where on, when you have a pillar that stands on strong grounding, has strong foundations, that's what right, it lifts up the entire structure that it should be in a state of permanence and not wavering. And that is the power that we have. And that's the key focus of chapter 9. Okay. With that, I'd elaborate a little more than I usually do because of your chvat and of course a special discussion here, but I will also point out that the Rebbe, in his work, what you see, what did the Rebbe do more than all the Rabbeim tell him? Obviously with their Kreiches, Deir Ashvi, comes the seventh after the sixth before him, is you see exactly that. No Rebbe was focused so much on Tachtenim, sending Shluchim all over the world, reaching people of all backgrounds. When you talk about the Alter Rebbe, and even the Friedrich Rebbe, most of their work was internal was with chassidim that were in their inner circle. Even when they did reach out, it wasn't to this extent. Now, it could be they didn't have the opportunity, it wasn't yet the time, but the Rebbe went literally in a tachtenim level. And to do what? To establish meizdis. Establish eimdim. Pillars that stand on strong foundations, a permanence in golos that it should be made prepared for geulah. 
And then I always focused on that, Shnas Abinyan, to build. And building means taking something from the ground level, connecting it to heaven. That's what an Amud is. That's what a pillar is. It connects, like the Mimer says, the Ritzpah, the earth, the ground, I'm sorry, the floor, to the ceiling, to the point that it become literally one. In Tav there's an interesting footnote from the Rebbe, what means literally one. That's more than just what you usually say, a good thought brings good, good things. Here, which we learned also from Srofim, again, that you actually can put yourself in a place if you're completely committed to it, as if you're there, literally as one. All emphasizing on the point of that type of permanence, structure, and emes, and achdus, and total unity, from the lowest to the highest levels. This is what the Rebbe did and continues to do through our work. And when the Rebbe said that now the Aved is finished, that with the Alta Rebbe there was not yet, there was still some Birurim had to be finished, like Yaakov Avinu thought that Esau was refined, the Rebbe said in the famous Vayeshev Tavshin and Beis that now we've even achieved that refinement, and we can go to France, which the Alta Rebbe opposed, and wanted Alexander of Russia to win. You can go to France, you can go into the material world, and even the core, the belly of the beast, so to speak, and transform that as well, as he explains in that, to take that world itself and turn it into a yesha nivra should become the basis of the yesha amiti, of divine presence in a permanent way. He talks about all these details as well there, not necessarily making reference to Basilagani. So, clearly, this is a tremendous lesson for us. This is the Rezan, that tray of our purpose, of our generation, our calling, to finish this job that the Rebbe began all the way back almost 70 years ago. And it's high time, and we're now almost 70 years since then. With that, let's go to... Um, before that, let me just refer to some cross-referencing. <clears throat> um, I've spoken about Yudshvat in previous years, in, Ch- in uh, episodes 53, 99, 148, 149, and 198. And this is a good time to give you some uh, information about My Life Chassidus Applied, if you're not familiar with it, that we have a very extensive um, extensive reservoir of resources at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you can find all the archives of all previous episodes. You can download podcasts. You can find even the topics in the YouTube version. It is time-stamped. You'll also find there a forum where you can submit any question anonymously, totally anonymously. And I am behind in some of the questions, but I, uh, I assure you that I will get to it. So please don't hesitate to write any question, completely anonymous. As well as you can also look there, and this is a good opportunity to segue into that we are right now in the first week of the contest, this year's annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest which will award $10,000 to the winning essay that will apply an idea to a personal issue or a contemporary challenge of our times. The second prize is $3,600. The third prize is $1,000. And there's a special student prize only for students of $500. Thank God it's creating a lot of response, perhaps more than ever before, both here and in Israel. 
And uh, please participate. All the guidelines and the rules can be found at MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. And you have a good four weeks to, uh, till the deadline on February 12th to submit your essay and have the chance to win $10,000. Okay. So now, let's go to some questions. Question number one, monotheism. Hey, Rav Simon. Why does Avram Avinu get credit for discovering and promoting one God? Adam and Chava knew about Hashem, so did their children, and Noach and his family, etc., also did. Wasn't one God common knowledge? Hashem punished people for violating the Sheva Mitzvahs, so they must have known about him. What is the Chiddush of Avram Avinu? Thanks, man. Okay. Well, very appropriate. The answer is in Basilagani. So even though Adam and Chava were in Ganeidin, and yes, they knew of God, and so did the generations after them, but their transgressions, <clears throat> their transgressions concealed the divine presence. Avram Avinu was the first that his Chilahoyer, he began to radiate, he began to illuminate after all that had happened, of course, culminating with the Mabal itself. The Mabal was the great flood after the great, the tremendous corruption in this world. Mole Oritz Chomos, Shachas, Chomos, it was a world filled with crime and corruption that Avram Avinu was the first to reverse the process and bring the Shekhinah from the seventh Rukiah back to the sixth, as I described at length. So that's why Avram Avinu, you see actual in actuality, even though there were those Sadiqim that knew of it, you had Noyach, you had previous generations, but they did not perpetuate it as Avram did. Avram went out, like the Rebbe says in the Maimon Basilagani Tavshin Alev, he taught them that God is one with existence and that we can access God. He went on that a pioneering effort. And that's why Avram is given that credit. So yes, Sheva Mitzvah B'neich were given. Some people, completed, some people fulfilled them, but you did not have a movement that actually would transform the world. And Avram Avinu led that movement. That's why he's given that credit. This doesn't take away from other individuals, but on that scale and that type pioneering way and actually building a home and a family that till this day, Manashi Yitzhavez, Bonovez, Beisei Achrav, Lasi Zdoka Mishpat, Yitzchok, that would lead to Yaakov, that would lead to the Shvatim, that would lead to all the generations of Jews till this day, goes straight back to Avram Avinu. Now, of course, Avram came from Shem, son of, um, of, um, of uh, Neyach, and Neyach came from Adam. But who led the way? It was Avram Avinu. He began that process that was concluded seven generations later with Moshe building the Mishkan, and the rest, of course, is history. Okay, next question. Something bothering me. Rabbi Jacobson, each week I watch your weekly program, My Life, Chassidus Applied. I enjoy your clarity and wisdom. Perhaps you can respond to my question below and give me some words of encouragement and chizuk. Chizuk is strength, inspiration. Thank you very much in advance. I have two questions that I hope you can give me, uh, that you can give me inspirational insights that will give me some chizuk which I can really use. I come from a Lubavitch family. In the past, in the past two years, my life has experienced a lot of bad. Three close family members passed away in this period all unrelated circumstances. Plus, I've had other hardships and aggravations. 
This has caused me a lot of grief. I am a, broke, I'm a, I am a broken man having a hard time coping with day-to-day life. Perhaps these questions are a result of that. Sorry for that. So the two questions that he poses. My limited understanding of Tanya is that every single Jew is expected to be a Benini. Looking around, I don't think there are more than one ben- then there's more one, than one Benini from Tanya for every 100 million people in the world. How could Hashem create a world with expectations that are clearly not attainable? If I open a school and only have 0.000001% passing, I would need to either lower my standards or close the school. Okay, question number two. In the past two years, I went countless times to the Rebbe's oil, said literally thousands of kapitlech tehillim, that's chapters of tehillim, of psalms, made in the most part kept positive achalotis, resolutions, spilled buckets of tears, and everything turned out exactly as it seems it would for Lahavdil, someone that didn't do any of these things. What is the point of all this? I think sometimes that all I did only worked against me because it put my hopes up. I believe that Hashem will help. The fall was much harder now. Please share with me something positive, some chizuk. Thank you so much. A broken heart. I read these type of letters even though I always qualify that it's an inadequate medium to address this on camera in a program like this. This you'd want to speak to someone face-to-face. I'd want to speak to you face-to-face and discuss it and perhaps be able to give you some consolation, some strength. But due to the, the blessings of technology, we do have this medium and this platform. So let me do my best that I can under the circumstances. But it still does not replace having a real friend, having someone you can trust and speak to because there's a certain strength we give each other in that type of personal connection. If you do want to reach out, please write to me. But remember, if you write on the forum, you have to give me your email address or contact info because there's no way to connect with you without that because it's a completely anonymous. A few things I would say, and this is something we've spoken about, I've spoken about a number of times. Uh, I don't know if it was a Chabad Rebbe, but there was some Rebbe that once said to a person who suffered greatly, he said, I don't have answers for you, but I can cry with you. We don't understand God's mysterious ways. That doesn't mean that we become victims and just fall on the floor and and, uh, lie down to die. It means that we recognize that there's a greater mysterious path and there's a greater good in everything. That doesn't mean we don't cry over our losses. And my heart goes out to you over what you describe. And uh, though I don't know who you are, I don't know what you experienced, but just the heart-wrenching words you pose here are enough for me to understand that you're dealing with a lot of pain. What I would say is it's critical at times like this to connect to someone you love, to someone you trust, to someone that has chassidish irrigation that can help you have a position of being tied above so you don't fall below. Because it's precisely these times that become so overwhelming that we lose hope and we lose strength. That's precisely why we need more than ever to reach out. So you must reach out. The fact that the the prayers that you said, the tears you shed, and everything else you described, you have not seen its results does not mean there are no results. It means you haven't seen them yet. 
But regardless, you must have people in your life, at least a person, if not more, that can help. That doesn't mean they'll have answers. That doesn't mean they'll be able to just relieve the pain. But there's someone to talk to. There's someone to hold your hand. Someone that can give you strength. What I can say is using this program here, using everything I've learned, where we learn glean strength from the Rebbe, from the Rabbeim, from Chassidus. Because it teaches us about our neshama, about our souls. It teaches us about the strength that each of us is blessed with. And it teaches us that we can access those strengths and we would not be given a challenge that we could not overcome. One of the most commonly used terms from the Rebbe, especially when dealing with challenging situations. So my chizuk to you is, my strength words of inspiration are, there is no such thing as hopelessness. It's unacceptable. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're breathing, the fact that you have the strength to write this means that God has blessed you. And now we have to find a way to access those deeper strengths and actualize them in your life. And you must reach out. It's very, very difficult to do alone because alone we're part of, we're part of the problem. Now I would also refer you to listen to episodes 11 and 83. I don't mean to be so technical under the circumstances, but I did discuss these ideas more at length there. Now, regarding your question about Tanya, and it's interesting you say that may be the reason you're asking the question is due to your feelings. I think you're asking an excellent question. I've actually never heard it posed quite that way. The question has always been asked, how does the Alter Rebbe say in Perek Yudalit, in Tanya, chapter 14, that midas zu, midas habenini, in midas kol odom v'achrei kol odom kol odom yimshech that the midah benini, which means what, as explains in Tanya, not according to the way the most people interpret it. But a Baini is someone who his thought, speech, and action never has done and never will do an Aveda. That which is inadvertent, not in his control, he has no control over. So in his Lavushim, he's like a Tzaddik. He's not a Tzaddik because a Tzaddik has actually transformed his faculties, the animal soul. A Baini has an animal soul that's active, but he controls its, its, uh, its expression, both in thought, speech, and action. The Alter Rebbe says it's midas kolod. This is the measure, this is the midah, this is the standard of every human being. And every person draw, is, is drawn toward there. When we see who has that state, that we know, they never did an Aveda and never will do one. So that question has been asked, and the answer given there is the Rebbe says, in Pedic Yudbeis, the Rebbe says, in his present situation, he is in a place where he's like, never done Naveda, never will do one. That, of course, opens it up to all of us. But that answer also answers your question. I just never heard the question posed quite in such stark terms. That if out of seven and a half billion people, I know we'll say Tanya is only for Eden. Let's talk 14 million Eden. You can barely find this percentage. I'd say even less. One Bainani. So, so who was it written for? something that's unattainable. But according to the Rebbe's beard, it is absolutely attainable. Because you're not talking, the most literal sense, yes, Abayni never did an Abayn. But everybody can reach a level as if they never did one because they are right now in a new state. And that answers the question. So the Alta Rebbe set a standard and said every one of us can access that standard. The fact that people don't, even if many people don't, does not mean we shouldn't live up, to, we shouldn't have that standard. 
Now, if the standard was unattainable, period, is one thing. But according to the Rebbe's explanation in Tanya, and you have to say that, because he says, everybody, every time can become a Baini. How could he say that when he said that a Baini is someone who never did an Aveda? That means if he did an Aveda, it's not Bechol Eis. He can't every moment become a Baini. But according to the Rebbe's explanation, that it's an Echuzdika, it's a type of personality paradigm shift where you can, in this particular situation you're in, you are now like a Baini, meaning the past is not relevant, doesn't affect you. That changes the picture and answers your question. Again, I share this with you and anyone else going through difficult times, dark times. It's vital to have good friends. I know some people say, my friends have betrayed me. They don't understand me. They laugh at me. They minimize it. So find someone else. I also say this in context of a colleague of ours, mine, personal colleague, Rabbi Yerna Aftzen, who tragically passed away in an untimely fashion on Gimel on the 3rd of Shvat last week on, uh, on Wednesday morning. I actually spoke to him the night before, Tuesday, several hours earlier. A man I've worked with closely for over 42 years, who established Tichus in English, and literally is responsible single-handedly of giving out hundreds of books that people study and learn till this day. And some of them are classics. So I wanted to mention that as well and also extend my consolation to his family and to all the friends. And again, we don't, we don't know God's mysterious ways. <clears throat> However, like I said a few minutes ago, because we don't know what these ways are does not mean we don't forge ahead. It doesn't mean we, we lie down. It means that we take the energy, we take the grief, we take the loss, and tra- chan- channel it and harness it towards positive ends, towards growth. That's what we were taught. Okay. Now, let's move on. The next, the next is not really a question, it's actually a response. The response is, in last week's program, I had the privilege to ask a question. Someone asked a, posed a request and asked me to announce it, and I've gotten many responses, but I'm just going to read two because others I have to personally pass on due to the details and some of the privacy involved. But the question was, the request was to find mental health specialists, references to mental health specialists that people can, this person wrote, can go to. Since I've heard many other people say, as soon as you get those specialists, please pass them on. So let me share with you my, what has come my way so far that I can share. And those that want more information, please write to us, and I will give it to you more in private a more personal way rather than here in the public forum. But in a public forum, I will read this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you very much for your classes. Uh, <clears throat> I only discovered it on my podcast now because it was too hard to listen on the computer. Thank you for putting it on that form. Regarding the mental health question, I, suffer, I personally suffer from both anxiety and depression. I didn't want to take medication, but after trying homeopathy and other alternative medications, I gave in. Medication works. I was very clear about what kind I wouldn't take. For example, non-addictive. And the doctors listened to me. Baruch Hashem, there have been many, many advances in this field of medicine. When taking medication, it is important to see a therapist at the same time. Medication is not the cure to everything psychiatric. They work hand in hand. If this gentleman who wrote last week, who you read his request, would like to avoid medication altogether... 
then seeing a therapist that is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and dialectic, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, is a good choice. It can be a one-time thing. It should be done on a weekly basis. Both techniques, cha- both techniques changes, changes the way you look at the world and forces you to stop and understand the situation. It's a lot of work, but it's totally worth it. I refer him to contact the Relief Center, www.reliefhelp.org, and they will be able to give out referral. If he's not in New York, they can give phone numbers to other large cities like L.A. and Baltimore. I am currently in Cleveland, so I could give info from here too. If he has any further questions, I'd feel more comfortable if we can, if we can go through your office as I would like to keep this as private as possible. Thank you for your inspiring classes. A second person writes, I listened to the latest episode and someone asked the audience for suggestions on mental health doctor. I personally went through some big bipolar disorder and depression. I was on medication and now I'm off, thank God. Just take a few, I just take a few supplements. With the help of a great doctor, here's the website, uh, www.holisticmd.org. He's a very nice guy and really cared for me all these years. Highly recommend him. Please feel free to ask me anything about it for more information. And we received several other comments and responses. I'll just orally share one or two that I both heard in writing, received in writing and heard from people who really thanked me for using this platform to allow that to happen because many people are really embarrassed, pride, and a lot of stigma involved to reach out. So thank God we can use this opportunity to allow people to find right referrals. Of course, any referral that you hear, you know, you need to double check with your local practitioner or someone that's an expert. I can't take responsibility for any of this because I don't know who they are. So I'm just sharing what's shared with me. But as adults, everything should be confirmed and always confirm with another entity just to make sure, if not two entities, especially your, your current practitioner, whoever your doctor is. One more thing I will say, there are other two resources not necessarily directly with mental health, but in general issues of challenges. One is amudim.org, another is neshamas.org. That you can, there are helplines there, and they're well equipped with a lot of resources to refer you to professionals as well, and you can remain completely anonymous in doing so. Okay, may we not need to go through any more such things, but as long as we do, we should be there for each other. Anyone has other resources, any referrals, please. Don't hesitate. This is really a matter of life and death for many and can help people. So let's do whatever we can to help each other in this regard. Next question. Okay. Is the emotion code in line with Judaism and Chassidus? May we we use it? Should we use it? Does it work? Thanks. Okay. Now, I'm not so familiar with the emotion code that you're referring to. I assume you mean the book and the movement that has uh, evolved from it, which has emotional interventions. I did not study it well enough to be able to tell you that it is uh, kosher and that it's using only methods that the Torah would condone and sanction. However, I will say as a general statement, and I've talked about this a number of times, meaning the nations of the world have wisdom. There are therapeutic models and, and methods and methodologies that are absolutely working. The Torah says, 
the Torah gave permission for a healer to heal. It doesn't say only a Yerushalayim healer. A healer. So the fact that there are methods out there that have been developed should not surprise us. And many of them may not be directly in Torah. It's true that one of my objectives, and I've talked about this many times, is to create a Torah-based model of psychology. But part of that would be to work with psychologists out there that's very consistent with Judaism. For example, among the different schools of psychological thought, we know the Rebbe leaned most toward Viktor Frankl's Man's Search, of Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning, logotherapy, as opposed to Freudian, the id, and other schools of thought. Because there is wisdom there, there is an approach, and there's even a clinical methodologies that have been developed that have a lot of strength. If we can combine the best of both worlds, we'd have the best. As far as the emotion code, I cannot endorse it, I cannot criticize it, I don't know enough about it. Um, if you speak about it, if you see something specific there that you bothers you or you think is questionable, by all means, write to me and I'll be happy to address it. I did do a little looking around. What I saw that was really basically mapping out the emotional um, so-called genome of the human being and addressing emotional challenges in a secular way. And some of the, uh, some of the interventions may not be completely Torah-based, but it doesn't mean that the principles there are not accurate. And at the end of the day, it is a man-made system. It's not a Torah-based system. But there's much wisdom that comes from that direction as well. Again, if there's more details, I'd be happy to address it in more specific detail. Okay, now we have several follow-ups. Follow-up number one is actually goes back to episode 214. We're now in 244. So I've spoken then, there was a, a very heart-wrenching article written about teens drowning in our current times. And I addressed it a number of weeks, one after the other, and there was a lot, a lot of feedback. A lot of, uh, a lot of things came out of that. I should add, many things that are discussed in this program, I don't always share, but the fact is there are an outgrowth of it in many good ways results because either the topic comes up and then people follow up, some people speak to me about it. There's been very, very powerful currents that have been initiated and uh, this program has been a catalyst for I find that, find that to be a tremendous gratifying thing and most importantly a great schus. So I mention it only because I think it's a lesson to all of us that when you make your effort that ever brings very often in the letters it's, it's established that an effort will not yield Will not, will not yield no results, will be fruitless. In other words, everything will bear fruit. Sometimes you see the fruit, sometimes you don't see it immediately. But I can testify myself for many of these things we talk about. I hear, besides the feedback that I get, and besides the questions I, I, and follow-ups that I address, is many things happen independent of this program, which is, how can I say, it's, it's, the ripple effect is a very powerful factor. So I just wanted to share that. So one of them was about teens drowning. A lot of came out of that, positive things. People who started coming out and talking more openly, reaching help, finding friends. And I personally know of people whose lives have been changed in the process. So, so, so I wanted to just read this follow-up. For some reason, I never read it, but I think it's valuable to read. So, hi. First and foremost, I would like to thank you for addressing this topic of teenagers drowning. As, as a bocher in the system... I can tell you how many friends are affected, etc., with no help or guidance from our mashpim, 
as this topic being an extremely taboo and sensitive, is, 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 being, is an extremely taboo and sensitive issue. I don't want to generalize and say that no mashpim in the system help, but in the yeshivas I attended, it was never addressed. Then he asked me to send the link. Please send me the link. Mention your podcast, episode 214, about how teenage brains work regarding to this aspect of sexuality, etc. Thank you. So thank you for that. And, uh, and of course, you can just go to episode 214 of the archives and you'll see all that, what, we're, what we're discussing. Okay, going back to episode 241. And uh, there was about emulating Yaakov Avinu. So someone had asked the question, why would anyone want to emulate Yaakov Avinu after everything that he did in his life? I read the question there. You can go back to see, hear that. So two responses that I didn't have a chance to read up till now, so I'll do that now. Okay. One was, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for addressing my issues with Yaakov Avinu. I did not mean to be irreverent. Honestly, I'm not sure you addressed my questions properly. Number one. I don't want to emulate Cain killing Abel with his daughters or Yehuda and Tom, late with his daughters or Yehuda and Tamar. The Tater's lessons with these cases are not to follow them. Yes, number two, yes. Life is challenging and my question isn't about the challenges Yaakov had. It is about how he chose to deal with them. Three, yes, I want to learn from the Tater, but what should my approach be to life's challenges? Four, I do want to learn how to emulate Yaakov. I will look into my modem and Sichis However, from what I've learned thus far, I haven't seen all these issues being addressed with a cohesive approach, but rather as individual lessons. I would love to learn something that teaches us what we can learn from Yaakov's approach to life's challenges. Thank you so much for all you do. May Hashem bench you and your family. So I believe I did address, this doesn't mean that we can't address it even further, there are many positive lessons. Look at what Yaakov did. He said to Ilim for 20 years, when he was with Lovan to maintain his sanity and to stay connected. Yes, you have controversial episodes and that's why you need to learn Chassidus to understand each one of them. But overall, Yaakov was a, a person who was a, a completely dedicated to godliness all the time. You see it throughout even the stories in the, in the Chumash. So I'm not sure why that itself is not a tremendous lesson, with, let alone going into Maimari Chazal, let alone going into Chassidus. You look in chapter 13 and Tanya, he brings Svasemes, he talks about Yaakov being the middle rod that Yaakov is teferis, compassion, the balance between Avram and, and, uh, and Yitzchok. The list goes on. Read the sikhs of the Rebbe on the Ushpizn, the day three. The Ushpiz is, is, excuse me, is Yaakov and the Chesidish Ushpiz, the Alter Rebbe, comparing Yaakov to the Alter Rebbe. I mean, on and on, you name Yaakov, you name Yisrael, and my modem talk about this. And these are all lessons from Yaakov, even in Akiv, his first name, he's Mamshel, the Yud of Akiv. And, and, uh, and the name Yisrael, of course, comes from his transformation, where he, where, where he beats, the, he wins over and conquers the Malach of Hashem, Malach of Esav. All these are lessons upon lessons. So I'm not sure why you're not seeing these lessons in different places. I can be more specific, but I don't know what, what more to add than giving you those guidelines. So here's another letter. Maybe this will also help. Possible response to the question about Yaakov Avinu. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. First of all, thank you so much for your wonderful weekly video of Fabrengans. I, I choose the word Fabrengan 
because of the way you help apply chassidus to our daily lives. Thank you. I watched episode 241 and have a possible response to the question about Yaakov Avinu. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Okay. Yaakov, from a very young age, saw his life mission as furthering the mission that Avram and Yitzchak started, the mission of living a life dedicated to Hashem and spreading the message of monotheism and goodness, kindness, and justice in the world. Of course, part of that mission is to have children who will carry on the mission. So he set about solely focused on that mission. His view constantly was that he needed to fulfill his life's mission and he would dispense of anything that jeopardized in the most efficient manner in any way that would help him stay focused on his mission. Confronting things head on in a way that may jeopardize his mission would be counterproductive. Yaakov understood that in order to fulfill his mission, he would be more equipped if he had a birthright. So he knew he had to get it from Esau. Now, as a younger man, he was willing to take more risks. Thus, he struck a hard bargain with Esau for the birthright, as he knew he needed that for his mission. By the time it came to get the brachas from Yitzchak, he realized that his father was going to give the brachas to Esau, for his father saw Esau's potential. Yaakov recognized that he needed to get the brachas for himself, but he also knew that if he just went forthright and told Yitzchak that he purchased the birthright, Yitzchak would not be happy about that and not give him the brachas. As Yaakov was already 70 years old and more risk-averse, he hesitated in carrying out the plan to deceive his father until his mother pushed him into doing it. So too, when he ran away from Esav, it wasn't that he was meek or unwilling to confront Esav, but in addition to the fact that his parents wanted him to leave, he saw a confrontation with Esav as jeopardizing his mission, of living a life dedicated to Hashem and of spreading the message of monotheism and goodness, kindness and justice in the world. So protect his mission, he thought it smarter to run away. With Lovan, he recognized that while he preferred to have married only Rachel, having multiple wives would give him a chance to bear more children, children who would carry on the mission. So fighting Lovan, the deceiver, wasn't worth it. In a way, Lovan had helped him carry forth his mission, more wives equaling more children. When it came time to leave Lovan, the main thing was to protect his children. All else was secondary, even if, this, even if it meant leaving without saying goodbye. When he was confronted by Esau, he sought to pacify him, again, because his eyes were on the prize to fulfill his mission. Confronting him would, not, would only jeopardize that mission. When Dina was raped, this struck deeply into his mission as it hit the future generation. But once it was done, he didn't want to jeopardize the rest of the family, the family who would, who would carry forth monotheism, etc. He even thought that once Shechem had raped Dina, maybe he would make the best of a horrible situation by getting the city to circumcise themselves for Hashem. When he came down to party, he wanted to detract attention from his family so they could live quietly serving Hashem. He downplayed his life and wealth so Pharaoh wouldn't see him as a threat. Does this view of Yaakov bear consideration? Yes, absolutely does. I'm glad you went into details. Of course, each one of them we can comment on and argue about, but I don't want to go into it right now. I suffice it that you've read what you wrote, and I hope that is helpful. Another follow-up, completely unrelated, was about singing in the restroom. So I spoke about that as well in two episodes back, 242. Shalom of Racha Rabbi Simen. Firstly, it's hard for me to believe that it's already five years old that I'm glued to your program every Sunday night. You have no idea how many people you helped and changed in that time. 
I was, pleasant, I was pleasantly surprised this morning that at 11 a.m. I was already able to hear your weekly episode. Yes, as an aside, sometimes when I travel, I need to do that. But generally speaking, it's live at 8 or a little earlier. But let's go on. Last week, episode 241, you read a letter from a mother with a heading of singing in the, in the bathroom. To be honest, there are times that I can, that I can know where the question is going, to, going by the heading. This one was different. I thought she was going to ask about the, about the toddler singing Chassidosh Nagunim and or the 12 psukim while in the bathroom. As you have said in today's episode, number 242, that a nigan can uplift a person. I feel that last week you should have reinforced what was said by the Rebbe, that Goyesh music is metame, it defiles the mind. Explicitly by the writer saying that her issue is getting a nigan stuck in her mind, with all that's going on these days, I was a bit surprised that you didn't use that opportunity. Thanks. Oh, one second, no, no. Sorry, no. When my three and four-year-olds would come home from daycare, they would go to the restroom and sing the gunim in the bathroom. Our mashpia said, just leave them alone. Eventually, they will understand that the bathroom isn't a place for nigunim. That's exactly what happened. Tiskel and mitzvahs, keep up the great work that you are doing. Okay, no comment necessary. That's that. Okay. With that, let me go straight to, I believe, just checking. Yeah. The Chassidus question of this week I've covered in the beginning of this program by discussing the theme of chapter 9 in Basilegani. So we're not going to have another Chassidus question. What we'll do now is the My Life Essays. So we have three essays, as always. We covered, reviewed essays that came in over last week's essay, last year's essay contest. And these three are Freedom from the Forces that Enslave Us, Levi Yitzchak Naki, age 19, Herzliya, Israel. He's a student in Temchitmim Mamarkoz's Kvar Chabad, the central Temchitmim Yeshiva in Kvar Chabad. So, let me see here. Yes. He talks basically about the challenges that life presents, whether it's uh, matters of material life, whether it's matters of um, social pressure. And he uses a few very interesting sources to help people get through it. He brings the sikha from the Rebbe, from Yudshva Tavshin Chav Beis, from Yudshva Tavshin Lamad Beis, the Hadron of the Rebbe in Tavshin Mem Vov, Yudalaf Nisan Mem Aleph. And, um, and his central idea is based on the sikha of the Rebbe in the call for a moment of silence in the year Tavshin Mem Gimel, 1983. It's a very interesting essay in the sense that it takes a common theme and applies chassidus to it, so I recommend reading it. That's a Hebrew essay. The next essay is called How to Properly Treat Your Wife by Rachel or Rachel Rosen, age 68, Astoria, New York. She's retired. So she talks about... Um, one moment, please. that in general psychology, and she's also heard different rabbis speak about two approaches. One is to, um, to convince the animal soul that it should do the right thing. Basically, it's training and re-educating a person when a person behaves in an inappropriate way to their wife or to others. 
The second is to reveal the divine soul. She makes the case here that this first option she's seen from certain case studies that she's worked with, clearly involved in these type of situations, it doesn't work as well as the second option, which she calls applied betochen. And taking a shalom bias challenge and applied betochen, how to look at your spouse in a different way. You're talking about an abusive person, to see your spouse as a godly entity. That's the gist of it. So a nicely interesting essay and uh, creative and finally, essay number three is a new approach to life's challenges by Schneer Itzinger, age 21, Oak Park, Michigan. He's a student of Shlichi Yeshivas Lubavitch in Detroit. So he writes that in this essay, he, I, I will propose how Chassidus teaches that a person's service of God, even his subservience and Kabbalah sale, is not about breaking himself and negating his own desires. It's not about reaching something he is not. There's no need for a person to look himself at himself as fighting as a as fighting a uphill slope whose peak he may not reach and whose every step is fraught with hardships. Chassidus provides a person with a very different approach, one in which his very essence is climbing the mountain of, of service of God, not negating or breaking himself, rather the contrary, building himself, reaching closer to his real self, his real mitzvahs. This approach is practical applica- is in practical application leaves a person feeling happy in the service of God rather than overwhelmed at the magnitude of the task. Goes on to the approach of Kabbalah said on breaking oneself, in the issues involved in that, and a new different approach and the practical application of all of it. Well annotated. These essays can be seen. They're posted as we're speaking. They're posted a new, uh, the, for the first time at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife where you can find these essays posted. Also, if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, you also will be able to receive post, uh, updates when these essays are posted. I'd like to also be excited to announce that we just released the first issue of a My Life magazine featuring one of the top, the top essays written last year with a little profile on the writer as well. And you can get this free online by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife and you can subscribe to it as they come out. So in, another feature to demonstrate the power of people writing essays and this is the opportunity to also encourage you to do exactly that. It's a, it's a level playing field. The, the, the contest is made specifically with you in mind allowing everyone to win. So don't, take, don't, don't lose this opportunity. Write. You really have very little to lose. It'll be an extremely enriching experience just on your own, applying chassidus. But above all, that you're doing something that will give nachas to the Rebbe. What better way to prepare for Yud What better way to enter into Yud Shvat than to write an essay that is dedicated to something that the Rebbe and the Rabbeim committed their lives to. As I mentioned in the letter, 18th of Tevis, Tavshim Tezvav, in English Kedish, we constantly publicize it, Rebbe writes exactly that, that in preparing to Yushvat, the students should write an essay talking about the Friedrich Rebbe and his work and so on. So with that, we will sum up and conclude. Um, this should be a, a very blessed week, a week of the Messias, of Yushvat, to strengthen our connection to the Rebbe's Teda, to the Rebbe's directives, Rebbe's actions, and actually finish the job of this Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation, to bring the Geula down, in a permanent way, Amudim, 
make pillars, a pillar that stands firmly on the ground in this world, but reaches up to heaven and connects to makes them all one, that Ruchnis and Gashmir become one. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My love is applied. Everyone be blessed. It should be a very powerful week, a powerful Tamid. And I should also mention that uh, we rely and depend on your sponsorships. Please consider dedicating a program or a series of programs to a loved one or in memory of a pass of, of a in memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one. We should only hear good news and we will see each other next Sunday. Thank you. Be well.